Let me also uh, take this opportunity to say uh, Happy Mother's Day and also to say congratulations uh, to our graduates. Got a lot to cover uh, this morning, so I'm going to jump right into it. I pointed out last week uh, in our ongoing study of Ephesians, my timing is impeccable. Last week, I spoke primarily to wives. This week on Mother's Day, I speak primarily to husbands. We arrive at what has been called the household code. That is how various members of a household are to conduct themselves with these three pairings, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. As we saw last week, Paul addresses each member of, that, of, the, uh, of those pairs, meaning everyone in the household has divinely appointed responsibilities to fulfill. We saw Paul command wives to submit to their husbands. This was intended to, to be neither demeaning nor condescending. It was simply, it is simply a matter of function and order within the family. But of course, through the centuries, men and husbands have been harsh and domineering, and so Paul follows his command to wives with a rather lengthy corresponding command to husbands. Three verses for wives, eight verses for husbands. Read them with me, Ephesians 5, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Husbands, listen up. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of His body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That kind of came out of nowhere. Paul acknowledges it. This mystery is great, but, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Let's go back to husbands. Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I have taught through this passage before in, in a couple of studies that we've done on marriage and the family, but as is usual, taking it in context reveals richer meaning to the text. Yes, Paul is addressing husbands and gives us the responsibility, our primary responsibility, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, but as is also typical, upon mentioning Jesus and the church, Paul uh, kind of goes off on a rich Christological rabbit trail. It's almost like he starts talking about husbands and, and marriage, and, and he mentions Jesus, and then he gets all confused and loses his place in his notes. I mean, he went, come, wait, come back, Paul, you're off. Or 
Well, or maybe we're the ones who are off confused with what this is all about. Yes, it's about husbands. Now, I'm going to talk to husbands today. But it is ultimately about Christ, because it's always about Christ. Some even argue that Paul actually tells us that marriage and a husband's love for his wife has always been the fulfillment of summing up all things in Christ. See, Paul is is actually going to go back to the creation account and make the, the very bold statement that marriage was always intended to picture the ultimate marital relationship between Christ and His bride, the church, because it is always about Jesus. It helps us to understand why marriage is so important. It's a picture. It's a type of the most important relationship of all time. As the church submits to Christ, and as Christ loves the church, it's an example to us. It's no wonder the Scripture places a high calling on marriage and, and, and defends marriage. It's no wonder the enemy would attack marriage and there would be so much vitriol over the last week over that vote on Tuesday. It's no wonder the Scripture says some strong things about divorce. It's a picture It's no wonder, Paul says, husbands, love your wives. You have the ultimate example in Christ. You are putting Jesus on display. So here's the question for you this morning, husbands. You are putting Jesus on display. What does He look like to to your families and to, to those around you? In the house hold code, Paul moves to husbands, and the outline of our text this morning looks a bit like this. This was a tough one for me to come up with. Command, love your wives. Then he gives us the example of Jesus. Command, just in case you didn't get it the first time, love your wives. Then he gives us two examples, your self-love and uh, the example of Jesus. Point three, the command, love your wives, and, and wives respect your husbands. So let's start with the command. Husbands, love your wives. It's a present imperative, which means present means it's ongoing. This this kind of love that he's talking about here should be the consistent commitment and affection and behavior of a husband to his wife always. Paul began chapter 5 with a command to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. And now, he, he gets very specific with it. Husbands, I, I want to make sure that you understand what I said in verse, verse 2. I want you to love your wives in the exact same way. You see, I think there's something to the fact that husbands are told in more than one place to, to love their wives. Verse 25 love your wives. Illustrates it. Verse 28, love your wives. It becomes redun- ridiculously redundant. Verse 28, each one of you, just so that there's no exceptions here, love your wife. 
Tells us Colossians chapter 3, husbands, love your wives. Are we starting to get the point that there must be an issue? Why would Paul tell us to love our wives? I mean, it does seem rather obvious, doesn't it? We don't live in a culture or society of arranged marriages. I was the one who asked my wife to marry me. Of course I love my wife. And the truth is most of us cannot differentiate between love and lust, love and infatuation, love and like, and love and, and butterflies. Most people in our society have no idea what love is. We, 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 we throw the word around loosely. We, we love our wives, we love baseball, and we love food. Not necessarily in that order. And so just exactly what does Paul mean when he says, men, husbands, I want you to love your wives. It's interesting to note that he commands love. It's a command. See, I thought I fell into it. No. Means it's beyond an emotional and physical response. It includes those, but love includes an act of the will. It is a decision that results in commitment. This is where our society messes it up. You see, they think it's just an emotion. It's just a physical thing, and when I fall out of the emotion, then I fall out of love. Well, yeah, if that's the kind of way, is that the way you define love, then of course you're going to fall out of love. You fell into it, you'll fall out of it. But if you understand that love is a decision and it's a commitment, it will remain. He uses the word here, agape. It's a very specific word, agape. He doesn't use, there are three or four or whatever different words for love in the Greek language. He doesn't use the word phileo, which speaks of a friendly, sisterly love. Hey, we can be pals. He doesn't use the word eros, which speaks of a sensual, sexual love. Hey, we can be lovers. He uses the word agape, which speaks of an intense, self-sacrificing, others-focused love. Then, just to make sure that we got it, Paul gives us a high and holy example of Christ Himself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So, the example is Jesus. What can we learn about Jesus' love for us as an example as we love uh, our wives? Five different things, very quickly. I am to love my wife sacrificially, that's obvious, and gave himself up for her. You see, for Jesus, this was a volitional act of self-sacrifice. He gave himself. What you notice that he initiated, gave himself, when as a willing victim to the cross. Paul is hereby telling us that love is costly, and true love, gentlemen, initiates. True love acts. It's not a response, it's active. Love your wife with a self-sacrificing love where you actually give yourself up for her, which means you sacrifice your own interests, your own time, your own resources for the benefit and welfare of your wife. I want to suggest that this is where the church has messed this up forever. You see, we think the little woman is to sacrifice everything for, for me. 
Secondly, following Christ's example means I love her unconditionally. This means there is no, I want you to understand that there is no provision in this section or any other for a wife to have to earn her husband's love. It is simply uh, commanded that husbands love their wives, which means we do not love her on the basis of performance. You jump through certain hoops, you do, you look, and I know. It's not based on her performance. Love is based on the action of the lover, not on the one loved. Remember, it is as Christ loved the church. So let me just ask you this question. Just exactly what was it about you that, you know, in your performance and your looks, that made Jesus love you? God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we were still sinners, unlovable, unacceptable, unlovely. He died for us. You love her not based on what she does or what she does not do, not how she looks or, frankly, how she does not look. It boils down to this. Love is a decision, a commitment to your wife. Remember these words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in success and failure, in sorrow, in joy, in need and in abundance. Third, love her ceaselessly. What does this mean? It means when you pledged your love before the Lord for her, it doesn't go away with the passing of time or the seasons of life. You see, true love actually grows stronger. And because real love is expressed in action, then you look for ways to demonstrate your love for your wife in practical, uh, unceasing ways. Fourth, this one is very subtle. I shared this with you last fall, but I think it's very important. You, you give your wife yourself, not just your gifts. What do, what do I mean? Notice it says, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Think about that. Think about that with me just a moment. Jesus could have said something like this. You know, I really, like, I really love those little humans and I'm going to prove it by giving them all kinds of stuff, gifts, you know, sunshine and rain and food and clothing and shelter and wealth and health and that, that stuff. Yeah, it'd be nice. But Scripture says, in fact, Jesus said, greater love is no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And he gave himself up. Of all the things that Christ could have given us, he gave us his most precious gift, and that is his life. So too, we can say, I love my wife, and I want her to have all kinds of stuff. I want her to live in a nice house, you know, nice stuff, furniture and whatever. Drive a really nice car, make it sound spiritual. I want it to be reliable, so it's got to be new. That means, that means I've got to work a lot. I'm not going to really see her as much as maybe she would like, but I want you to think of all the good things that I'm providing. And I want to suggest that godly wives will tell you what they want most, what they want most out of life are meaningful relationships. Appreciate it so much, Marcy's prayer. Moms want meaningful relationships with their 
with her kids. And I'm sorry for those of you that don't have that. And, and, and if I'm talking to a kid here this morning and you don't have a meaningful relationship with your mom, you need to work on that. It wasn't even in my notes. It's just, just it's Marcy's fault. They want deep and meaningful relationships. That's the way God made women. And they want deep and meaningful relationships with their husbands. So when you work too much, it's not that she does not appreciate your commitment to do a good job. It is true that if we love them as Christ loved the church, we will give ourselves to them. Fifth, last on this, well, not last, don't get excited. If you love her as Christ, that was stupid. If Christ loved, if we love her as Christ loved the church, you will pour yourself out in a way that transforms her. What do I mean by that? Look at verses 26 and 27, gave himself up or 25 to 27, gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for the benefit of his bride. Yes, it ultimately redounds to his glory, but it is for her good. So also, we give ourselves up for our wives, not for our own benefit, not for what we can get out of it. There's no selfish motivation. If I serve her today, what can I possibly get? No, you give yourself up for her. Verses 26 and 27, this is what Jesus did that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or, no wait, so that he, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and, and blameless. Now, now I want to be clear as we get to verses 26 and 27 that Paul is, is, is fully on the rabbit trail now, all right? Paul is, is talking about Jesus. I said last week, there is no sense in which I am the Savior of my wife. These verses, Paul turns his attention to Christ, but, but it's very interesting that as he does so, this is an allusion to Jesus being the husband of his wife, the church. It becomes clearer later. See, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in the Gospels, which is a clear self-declaration of deity, because this image of marriage is seen throughout the Old Testament with God Himself being the husband and His covenanted people being the bride. Jesus unabashedly takes on that responsibility with the new covenant people that we call the church. So, Jesus gave Himself for His bride to what end? That He might sanctify her probably is referring to both her initial salvation and the ongoing process of sanctification where she is made more holy. See, he's concerned about her holiness. I think that maybe applies. Cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. That probably refers to that initial salvation again. That is when she was saved because passing cleansed her by washing with water through the Word, the washing of regeneration through the Word of the Gospel and the work of the Spirit. And now we're being sanctified. Notice that this moves, this whole thing moves through time. We, we were saved. We are being sanctified so that in the future, Jesus might present the church, which is his bride, to himself in all her glory, reflecting the glory of her Savior, having no spot or wrinkle, speaks of her moral beauty, her moral purity. So, so that she would be holy and blameless. That takes us back to chapter 1. He, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be, what? Holy and blameless. And so Jesus is doing that with us. 
John Stott says of, uh, 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 of this movement toward perfection. On earth she, that is the church, is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. And I would add that he loves us anyway. But one day she will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots and wrinkles or any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. Paul takes us on this little Christological rabbit trail, but I want to suggest that as he uses Jesus and his relationship to the church as an example, as an example, that we too can relate to our wives a little bit this way. What do I mean? I would say that as the head of the wife that he talked about, we talked about last week, it should be our desire first to see our wives continually transformed into a beautiful, spotless bride. There is a sense in which our leadership ought to reflect Christ's desire for her to be sanctified, holy, washed by the water of the Word to the end that she might become more and more the glorious bride of Christ. So I've been more concerned about the way she looks. This means we should be actively involved in our wife's spiritual development, growth, and maturity. We do that by praying with them, sharing the Word of God with them, and being men of the Word of God ourselves. Not only are we to love our wives as Christ loved the church, but, but secondly, we are to love our wives like we love ourselves. <laughs> That's just weird. I mean, at first glance, it seems like that Paul takes a kind of a right turn. He moves from the, the, the hot, this example of, of Christ's self-sacrificing love to, to us and our self-focused, selfish love. But Paul actually has a Christological purpose in mind that, that is going to become part of this unfolding mystery. He uses that word, this mystery that he's unfolding in the, in the book. Follow, follow his very intentional thought process here. It is amazing. It's incredible. I'm to love my wife as my own body. The principle is the same as when Jesus was asked one day, what is the first and greatest commandment? He said, you love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let me and here's the second one. The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And see, Jesus and then now Paul start from a premise that most people love themselves. In fact, that's actually most of our problem. We love ourselves. And so he, Jesus tells us, I want you to love people as you love yourself. Provide, provide the same level of attention and care for them that you do for you. But, but, but why is it that we can think of doing that with every, almost everyone except the one we sleep with? We can apply this at work. You know, we can go away from a sermon and go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do that. And so we do that sometimes. We do it at church. We can kind of pull it together most of the time, you know, for church. But, but, but seldom at home. And yet I would suggest that it begin there. Think about it. Who is, after all, your closest neighbor? So what this verse says is this. Love her as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. That, that's, a little bit, that's a little bit odd. 
But, but Paul actually means more than meets the eye. He'll explain it shortly. He says, he goes on to tell me how I love my wife as my own body, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. And so nourishes and cherish. First thing I'm going to do, if I love my wife as Christ loved the church, then I will nourish her. What does that mean? The word literally means to feed, cause to grow, bring to maturity, teach, instruct, care for, okay? It means to make sure that her needs are met. The idea is that we will provide all that our wives need to grow. Now listen, if you're taking notes, write these down. Spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically. Spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically. So I thought I'm just, the, I'm just supposed to provide the house. It does mean that we provide for her physically, but we also spend time with her. We communicate with her in such a way that we meet emotional and relational needs. I would venture to say, I, I, I know that you'll give me all kinds of reasons this is not true, but I would venture to say that your wife desires to be in relationship more with you than anybody else on the planet. Say, so, nah, nah, it's not, you don't know my wife. No, the problem is I, I, you don't know you. We communicate with them in such a way that we meet emotional and relational needs. We encourage them to take care of themselves physically, and we do that in such a way that they know that we are concerned about their health and not just the way they look. And we actually encourage our wives in their spiritual journeys. We provide opportunities. We look for and provide opportunities for them to grow in Christ. In addition to nourishing, we also cherish. That word means to keep them warm. We comfort them. We pour out tender mercy, a tender love on her that warms her, which will meet her primary need. Taking notes, gentlemen, if you don't know this, you need to know this. Her primary need is security. She needs to know that you care for her, that you are committed to her, that there is no one else, and there will never be anyone else. If you've never taken your wife by the hand to say and said these words, I love you, I am here, and I will always be here, you need to do that today. Mother's Day, it's a great day. She needs to feel valued. She needs to feel cherished. In words, she needs to feel safe. That's what it means to cherish. So, we care for her as our own body. First example, as our own body. But now Paul again goes back to the example of Christ. Just as Christ also does the church. He nourishes, he cherishes us. But now you need to buckle up just a bit because this is where Paul throws this amazing curveball. He makes this point. Jesus cares for us because we are members of his body. We, we, these taught us that, right? We are his body. Uh, yeah, we're the body of Christ. I, okay, I'm, I'm there. I'm with you. Similarly, he's saying, care for your wife like she is your body because she is a member of your body. And you go, uh, okay, you, you kind of lost me there. Uh, certainly, we could say she's a member of the body of Christ, just like I'm a member of the body of Christ, so we're members of the same body, so I need to treat her that way. Yeah, kind of, not really. Paul actually gets a bit crazy here, goes further by quoting Genesis chapter 2. He quotes it in verse 
31. And it's almost like he just pulls it out of thin air. When you, he says, when you got married, you left your mother and father, you were joined to your wife, and you became one flesh. The words be joined actually is, speaks of something being glued to something. You are glued to your wife such that you are one flesh. Now, we typically think of this one flesh union as a sexual union, and certainly it includes that. In fact, some people, most feel that's what Genesis 2 was talking about, but now Paul takes it further. In marriage, husband and wife become one flesh. They become glued together. They become one body. So when he says, nurture and cherish your wife like your body, he means you are one flesh. She is your body. Like Christ is the head of His body, the church. So, when you treat your wife with loving service, caring for her, He's actually saying that you're doing it to your own body. That, that's different. Paul acknowledges, I know that's a bit, I know I just threw you a curveball. This mystery is great. Mystery in the book of Ephesians speaks of what God has done through the gospel of His Son. Here, Paul is kind of giving us a full orb picture of the mystery. He says, listen, I know it's a mystery. I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Well, this is what he means. When God created marriage way back in Genesis 2, the one flesh Union was always intended to be a picture of Christ as the head of his body, the church. And so now Paul can say, thousands of years later, husbands, in your one flesh union, care for your wife. She is, after all, your body like we are his body. Let me summarize. We are to love our wives just as Christ loved the church, which means sacrificially, unconditionally, unceasingly. It means I give myself to her, not just what I can provide. I will pour my life out in such a way that transforms her, sees her transformed in the image of Christ. I'm to love her as my own body, meaning I will nourish and cherish her. I am convinced, gentlemen, listen up. I am convinced that if we, if we treated our wives this way, if we acted this way toward our wives, then headship, the verses we talked about last week, would not be an issue. They would feel honored. They would feel cherished. They would feel valued. They would feel joy in their high position. I am convinced that at the heart of a redeemed woman is a desire to follow her husband's godly headship. And so then Paul finishes with verse 33 in summation. I'm done. He finishes this first pair of the household code. I, I, know that was a, I know that was a twist. I was talking about the church, but I know I'm supposed to be talking about husbands. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as himself. Now you know why. Because your relationship with that woman pictures Christ in the church just as we are his body, so also she is your body. And he gives a very specific command. Each individual among you is to love his own wife. You say, you don't know my wife. I don't have to know your wife. 
Paul said, each individual among you, there is to be no exception. This applies to every wife and every husband. Wives, by the way, you need to respect your husband. That's not a new thought. At the heart of submission is respect. I close as I did last week. Love and respect are not earned. Love and respect are commanded. So do it. Do not wait for the other party in the marriage to do their part. You be, remember, filled with the Spirit and you do yours. Let's stand for prayer.